Well, good morning, Bridge Church. All right. Like you said, I am new, brand new to Wichita. I've been here now for four months, um, serving at First Free Church. I was in Kansas City before that for a couple years, and even before that, uh, was in Chicago for three years. Um, but it is. But I grew up in this area, Southeast Kansas, Coffeyville, Parsons. My wife calls it the middle of nowhere. So. Uh, so it's good to be back here. It's good to be back in, in the Kansas area. A little bit about me, a little bit about my family. Um, I married of eight years. Uh, we have two little girls, uh, one three-year-old, Avery, and an eight-month-old, Allison. So if you can imagine, me and three girls. Uh, my time is filled up with tea parties and practically every fancy Nancy book that exists. So. But I am grateful for Brandon to invite me to share the word with you this morning, to speak from Amos's text. It's been a joy to get to know Brandon. Um, as many of you know, several of us pastors gather each week uh, to explore the text together. We believe that the right preaching, that theology is done best in community, that left to our own, we're bound to go astray, but we need one another. And so we gather each week uh, to discuss the text, um, to discuss the truthfulness therein, and to understand how to communicate it clearly. So, uh, so it's a joy to, to come and to share with you this morning. And today, we come to our second sermon in the book of Acts. Have you guys been enjoying Acts? It's kind of a trick question, isn't it, right? If you, if you say no, it looks like you don't like God's word, right? But if you say yes, it's like you're a glutton for punishment. Because Amos is not a happy book. It is a humbling book. Amos is a humbling book, and it's a message that we need to hear, don't we? Amos, the message of Amos is necessary for us today because it humbles us, because where the pride of life is present, injustice is not far behind. So what I'd like for us to do this morning, I want us to read these 15 verses from chapter 3 of Amos and then dive into the text together as we hope to hear well this word that the Lord has spoken. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Amos 3, and if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, 
Thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. On that day, I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Ouch. (laughs) As I said, Amos is not a happy book. It is a humbling book. And if you read Amos and you feel justified, you think, you know, God is on my side and everyone else, someone else is going to get it. And you're probably not reading Amos rightly. But if you feel conviction, that's okay. Because that's what Amos is trying to do. Amos is a book about the inconsistency of our worship and our walk. How our daily walk ought to reflect the very heart of the one that we worship. And this is a great responsibility. The message of Amos that he brings to us in chapter 3, that he wants to communicate to his church today, is not simply one of judgment, but it's one of disappointment. That you, of all people, my people, that you should have known better. You should have known better. Have any of you heard those words? Makes you feel great, doesn't it? For me, it was any time I harmed my sister. You should have known better. You should have known better. Have you heard these words from a parent, from a grandparent, from a teacher, from a boss? You should have known better. It makes you feel awful. Because isn't disappointment one of the worst forms of punishment It's more than just physical. It's more than just harming the body, but it cuts right to your soul. It attacks your very identity, who you are, the thing that you hold about yourself above all else. It says we had such hope in you. We had such hope. We believed in you. You were gonna do great things, but you blew it. You blew it. You didn't measure up. You should have known better. This is the essence of the lion's roar in Amos 3 and that we will explore today. And there are three things from Amos that we are called to hear with our ears today. And these three observations that we want to pay attention to this morning are marked by three separate calls to hear in the text. You'll notice that in the chapter three of Amos, he implores his reader three different times with this language of hearing. And of course, we've been listening to the judgment of God the first two chapters, right? But now, right now, beginning with chapter 3, verse 1, it is the first time in the book of Amos that Amos directly urges his readers to hear, to hear, to listen. Because the call to hear is a call to understand. The act of hearing is so foundational to Israel's story. One of Israel's most common commands, right? In fact, the command on which everything else hangs is titled, Hear. In the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it's called Shema. You know, if you've been around church for a little while, if you know some of the church lingo, you're probably familiar with this, the Shema. And the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord, your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Hearing is foundational to the story of the Israelites. Our God is a God who speaks, is he not? And here roars. The question for us is whether or not we'll listen. The call to hear is a call to understand. For Israel should have known better. Sorry, there's a lot of feedback. Is it because I move around? Okay. But we need to listen today, do we not? To learn from the judgment on Israel. The first piece we hear is in these first eight verses, verses one through eight. And what we hear is that the greater the privilege, the greater the consequences. The greater the privilege, the greater the consequences. Look with me at verses one through two. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Amos here, Amos now is reminding them of their special place. They are special calling. We talked about it earlier. They're, they're treasured people. But if you're them, this rescue happened generations ago, did it not? They, they never experienced it. And yet God reminds them that they are the very people he rescued, the ones he has saved from the oppression in the past. So far, so good. God is reminding them how he did good to them. And more than that, with verse two, God reminds them that he knows them. He goes on, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Of all the families of the earth, he has known this people. He knows them. They are his. And not only are they known by God, but of all the people on the earth, these are the ones God has chosen to reveal himself to. God knows them. They know God. And it's why this next part is so perplexing. It's not what anyone would expect if you're reading this text. Verse 2 is this cause and effect, right? The cause, God says, I've rescued you in the past. You're my chosen people, my treasured possession. The only ones that I have known and that I have allowed to know me. And now the effect. Because you expect something favorable, do you not? If you've read a little bit of the Old Testament. Something like, therefore, I will protect you. I will do good to you. I will bless you. I mean, that's how Genesis 12 reads. When God spoke to Abraham, and he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. That's Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When, I call, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. But in Amos, that is not what we find in verse 2. Amos writes, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, and here it comes, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Precisely because I know you, because of who you are, I will punish you. He's saying the greater the privilege, the greater the consequences. And that's heavy. Intellectually, we, we get it, right? Intellectually, it makes sense to us, but this is not the way our world operates, does it? Brian Stevenson, in his book called Just Mercy, he's, he's talking about the death penalty, he's talking about capital punishment, and he says this. He says, capital punishment means them without the capital get the punishment. Now, 
the issue of capital punishment aside for a second, Brian brilliantly illustrates how our world usually operates. Those without the capital are the ones who get punished. Those without the privileged are the punished. Because, you know, if you've got enough money or the right powerful friends, you can get off the hook, right? You can escape your responsibility. But if you don't, if you are the marginalized, if you didn't grow up in the right neighborhood with the right friends or the right connections, there's no escape. Yet we find in the economy of God, it is exactly the opposite. Those with the greater privilege have a greater responsibility. And not wielding their privilege well meets great consequences. I mean, can you imagine if the rest of the world operated like this? Church, can you imagine if our church worked like this? If the church acted like they were the chosen people, like they were the chosen possession of God? Look at the church today. Leaders who abuse their power, who are falling right and left, and you would think of all people, they should know better. Churches who treat others as though they are an other, not part of their body, not part of their community, not part of the chosen race. Can you imagine if the church acted like they are? If the church lived into the calling to which they've been called? It would change the world. Church, this is a time of confession, as we did earlier. It's a time to confess who we are and how God has knit us together as one family, as one body, how we care for one another, how we love one another, our responsibility because of our great calling. The blessing of God carries great responsibility, being known by God and knowing God. Genesis 12 that we mentioned earlier. This is exactly the text that Amos is recalling. He wants his readers to think about. It's the beginning of this family. It's the beginning of this chosen people. God has called to know Abraham and to be known by him. And he makes this covenant with Abraham, with these people. God says, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. So that, listen to this, so that you may be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, in you, through you, by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Church, God has made himself known to them so that they might make God known to all. This is a covenant that God made with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And yet they turned their back on his way. There was such great hope. Expected great things. Yet it ended in disappointment. Rather than being a blessing, they were a curse. They didn't reflect their knowledge of God. And God wouldn't stand for it. They should have known better. They should have acted like the people that they were. Take a deep breath, right? This is heavy. And they thought so too. That's why we have this next section. They knew that this was hard to understand. This is not right. Can you imagine the hearers of this? They're setting, they've, as a country, they're the, at the most, at one of the wealthiest times they've ever been. 
They've conquered many of their neighbors. They've had a large pouring in of wealth. They are at ease, many of them, not, though not all. Why would God punish those he's chosen? Look at us. It doesn't make sense. And so we have verses three through eight. All these weird phrases, right? About snares and birds and countless other things. This list is a list of causes and effects, right? It's meant to validate Amos's role and his message. If you're in business, you might, you might know this strategy. It's called, he's trying to get them to a yes. It's a popular book uh, in business world. It's a negotiation strategy. Some of you know how to do that, I'm sure pretty well. Um, if you've ever been in an argument and you're with your wife, maybe you've tried it as well. Um, but it's essentially this. He lays out a litany, a series of common sense cause and effects. Anyone with a brain would agree with, right? He lays out all these common sense arguments that anyone would, would agree with so that when he gets to his main argument, you're ready to agree. He wants them to understand this significant cause and effect. God is bringing disaster because they have broken their covenant with him. And it was precisely because of their close relationship with God that punishment was coming. That they, of all people, should have known better. That great, that great privilege leads to great consequences. Thankfully, we have a different hope. We, we know that we can't carry the weight of that. Can you? Can I? I can't carry the weight of that. That we have someone who has come to carry it. Someone who could live into it. That we might seek to reflect. But this isn't the only thing Amos wants us to hear. The second thing he wants us to hear is that you're worse than you think. It gets better, church. You're worse than you think. We have an incredible capacity to minimize our sin, don't we? Incredible capacity. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Most of your Bibles probably start with this language of proclaim there in verse 9. But it's, it's, it's the, same, the same word as in verse 1, this shema, just a different form, vocal, the spoken form. So we have a new section with a new message for us to hear. And what's happening now is that Amos is calling the strongholds of Ashdod and Egypt to come to Samaria, which is Israel, and to witness against her, to be a witness against her, to witness the chaos, the oppression, to observe Israel's own strongholds and witness the violence and robbery therein. So I have a comparison going on. The beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 10 use this language of strongholds or wanting to compare them. So what are they? What are strongholds? If you are a nation, as you might be someday, and you conquer a city or you conquer another country, what's the first thing you do? One of the first things you do is you plunder it. You just tear it to shreds. You take all the good stuff, right? All the gold, the precious gems, the fine clothes, the weapons, everything. And you take it back you take it back to your stronghold. You take it back to your fortress, your Fort Knox. This is this large tower, often next to the king's palace or in the major city centers. Essentially, what's happening here, the Lord is telling, is calling Ashdod and Egypt, these other, these foreign nations, to compare their strongholds with those of Israel. And through this comparison, they will be a witness to the violence and oppression of Israel. It is through this comparison, 
is how that they will show how truly evil Israel had become. How so? Because Ashdod and Egypt were evil, if you don't know that. Ashdod, is, it's the area of the Philistines, so you might be familiar with that language. Along with the Egyptians, they were known for their cruel oppression of Israelites. They bordered this country. They argued about trade routes. They took Israelites captive, tortured them, plundered neighboring cities. They were the enemy. They were the enemy. And God is calling the enemy to come and witness, to bring witness, to bring charges against Israel. They were the experts in violence and oppression. And the Lord is saying, Israel, you're worse than that. You're worse than that. And here's why. It's found in this comparison. While Ashdod and Egypt's, if you look at Ashdod and Egypt's strongholds, what are they filled with? They're filled with the plunder of their enemies. Probably a lot of Israel's, right? Filled with the plunder of their enemies. And yet we find that in Israel's strongholds, they are filled with the plunder of their own people. The plunder of their own people. Through the devouring of their own poor, the storehouses of Israel have become fat. Their very plunder is a witness to the violence and the robbery of their own people. In eight, a little bit later on, Amos 8, 4 through 6, we find, right now we're given just a general description. Amos 8, 4 through 6, we find just one description of this robbery. Just one description. Amos says, hear this. You who trample the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, get this, when will the Sabbath be over? so that we may offer wheat for sale. That we may make an ephah small and a shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. That we may buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Look, what makes this robbery so heinous, so why Amos is so mad, you think it's hot right now, why Amos is so hot is because this injustice was baked into the system. It, it's, not like, it's not like they were committing robbery like we think of today, right? Down a dark alley, you beat someone up, you take their pocket change, you leave them in the gutter. That's bad. But Amos says what's worse than that is baking it into your own economic system. You are making injustice part of just how you operate. You're making it good. You're calling evil good. It was part of the system, all in the name of making a profit. And listen, friends, we can do, we can justify a lot of things all in the name of making a profit, right? Who cares if others get hurt? That's their problem, not mine. If they're poor, they just need to work harder. But here, Amos is decrying a system where the poor have no way out, where they are crushed underfoot where the very economic system is corrupt, where people are so desperate, so desperate that they can be bought, the people are bought with a pair of sandals for bare necessity. Because you see, in this day, it's not like today. Some of you guys might be thinking, oh my gosh, this is us, what's wrong? But there are differences, right? In this day, you couldn't declare bankruptcy, right? That wasn't how the, how the world worked. If you lost your money, if you lost your job, you go into slavery, into servitude, you and your family, until you can pay it back. But yet we see here, there's no way of paying it back if you're bought with the bare necessities. 
You are in servitude, you and your family, for life. That was the heart of this injustice, the heart of crushing the poor underfoot, as we read in chapter 2. Amos saw these economic practices as robbery. He called it what they were. For not even Ashdod and Egypt would do that to their own people. One commentator was trying to relate this today to today. Was trying to relate having Egypt, this evil empire, come and be a witness to say that Israel is even worse. Here's how he described it. He, he tries to, he builds a parallel between Hitler, right? Pulling Hitler into stuff always feels like a cop-out, but he said it's like having Hitler come and be a witness against the Western world's abortion practices. Maybe you guys don't know this. I didn't know this. But under the Nazi regime, abortion was extremely restricted. They wouldn't do it. Actually, the only times they allowed it was for racial reasons. It wasn't pure. Not even, not even the Nazis would allow their unborn to die. That's one of the parallels. See, Israel was much worse than they thought. Because in verse 10, Amos says they didn't know how to do right. Literally, it says they didn't know how to go straight. They didn't know how to walk straight. The language of wisdom, of walking the narrow path. And many of you might know this, but I love this. But what happens if you, maybe you've been lost in the desert or lost in the forest. But if you're lost in the desert, lost in the forest, you have no north star or setting sun to guide you, but you try to walk out, what happens? You know? Have you heard this before? You walk in circles. And in fact, researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics, they, they did an extensive study on why. Why do people lost in the desert and the forest walk in circles? And do you know what they found? I think it's, it's fascinating. Because it turns out it has nothing to do with our stride. You know, it has nothing to do with you know, one leg is longer than the other. Uh, nothing to do with any of that. The researchers concluded that, in fact, it's our ever-changing sense of straight ahead. Yeah. With every step, our sense of what is straight changes just a little bit. So that at, one, at some point, we're going in circles, going nowhere. These people couldn't go straight. Because left to our own, isn't it true? Left to our own, we are bound to end up crooked. But that was the whole point of the covenant. That was the whole point of being God's chosen people. The whole point of knowing God was to be like God, to walk his path, to not go our own way, but to follow the Lord. Left to our own, we are much worse than we think. Left to our own, we are much worse than we think. Sin has marred our sense of direction. We don't know how to go straight, and we need someone to follow what might this look like for us? In your jobs, what does it mean to act justly, to do good work, to treat coworkers equitably, to not have profit be your main end, but good profit that seeks the well-being of those that you serve, those who use your product, those who work to make it? God must lead in our vocations. God must lead in our families. Do we seek our own way or do we seek that? Do we seek the good of our family? Because it's hard. It's hard. 
It's why Jesus came, to give us a picture of what it looks like to live this good life. To die for us so that we might have the opportunity for our hearts to be changed and to walk this path. Without him, it is impossible, as we see here. Because those who seek only to consume will be consumed themselves. We see this, verses 11 and 12, the devourers become the devoured. Their strongholds are plundered. The plunder of their strongholds are plundered. There will only be scraps left. It's the essence of verse 12. It's, it's a gruesome picture. It is a gruesome picture, this image of a shepherd. But he's not saying, but understand this, because it can be confusing. It's not saying that some will be rescued. Don't worry. Some of you will be rescued. In fact, Amos is referencing the law. He was a shepherd, right? We learned that last week. He was a shepherd from Tekoa. And in the law, because if a shepherd loses an animal, he's on the hook. The animals aren't his. They're someone else's. And he's on the hook for that animal. And he is required by law to produce the pieces of the animal to prove that it was attacked or destroyed rather than stolen. This is part of the law. So Israel will be destroyed. And in the same way, Israel will be destroyed Destroyed so, so totally that there will only be pieces left. Or as, as Josh Black likes to put it, there's just enough there to do a DNA test. There's just enough there to tell who it is. On our own, we're worse than we think. And if that isn't heavy enough, <laughs> the last point we hear is that nothing can withstand God's judgment. Nothing can withstand God's judgment. As we look at these last few verses in 13 through 15. In verses 13 through 15, we introduce the three houses the house of Jacob, the house of God, so the language here, Beth El, literally means house of God, and the house of wealth. House of Jacob, house of God, and the house of wealth. But the lion is coming, and each of these houses will be blown down. So I know what you're thinking, right? This is the three little pigs. There's barely any difference. Seriously, though, stay with me for a second. I want to draw this parallel. Listen with me. In the three little pigs, each pig builds a house as they see fit. The first two, being very frivolous and arrogant, build houses of straw and sticks. So they build a house, and when the threat of destruction comes in the form of a wolf, each pig runs to the place that they thought would be secure. It's the point of a house, right? place of security from the outside world, the place where these pigs put their hope of survival. But the first two, being unwise and arrogant, were devoured by the wolf. When Sarah Beth and I were talking about that, she's like, wait, they were devoured? Yes, in the original one. The pigs don't run to their sibling's house. <laughs> it's, as, it's as gross as Amos is, um, the old child's tales. They were devoured by the wolf. Because their foolishness, in their foolishness, they had not put time and trust in the right sort of house. And here in Amos, we encounter the same sort of tale, but with three unfit houses. First, the house of Jacob. It's their family line. It's their name, their reputation, the home they find secure and put so much hope in. As they would claim, we have Abraham as our father, therefore God is on our side. 
And aren't we prone to the same thing? <laughs> to say, that couldn't happen to me. I'm a green, which is my last name, or whatever your last name is. My dad or my mom, they work here or there. They, we have powerful friends. Surely I can skate by on their reputation. They did good, so I don't have to. As though that would justify them. But as we saw in the first point, great privilege comes with great consequences. And then there's the house of God. The house of God. In verse 14, Bethel, like I said, literally means house of God. It was their main place of worship. But it had become a place of idolatry. And the sneaky kind of idolatry. The sneaky one. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that looks like? Because it's, it's not like they got rid of Yahweh and they started worshiping these other gods. But rather, they sprinkled in a little bit from all the other religions. So at Bethel, they still worshiped Yahweh. But on the altar, they put a golden calf that they might worship like the people who worship Baal. And, and, and they'd worship other gods alongside of Yahweh, the one who they were supposed to give all their allegiance to, the only one they were supposed to give all their allegiance to. The worship here was wrong because it ignored the true God. And more than that, you find the horns of the altar are cut off. And the significance of this act is so profound. There, there are a couple stories at the beginning of, of the book of 1 Kings where someone commits a sin or, or aggravates the king. And, and in fear of the king's response, they fled to the altar and they hung on the horns of the altar. It was a place of refuge. It was an asylum from the coming judgment. As though clinging to the horns of God's altar, they might be spared by God. And so listen to what Amos is saying. Your very worship disgusts me. And we'll learn a lot about that here in the next few weeks. As my judgment comes, I will remove the very horns of the altar so that you have no refuge, no place to cling to, because your worship of me is false. These next few weeks don't get much better. <laughs> we're going to dive deeper into what this looks like. This week might feel a little abstract, but we're going to dive more these next few weeks of what this looks like. But what are the horns that we cling to? What are the religious activities we hope in? Rather than doing the will of God and to love and to care for the marginalized, here we find that no religious activity will stand. None of it. And lastly is the house of wealth. A summer house, a winter house, houses of ivory, the great houses. Amos is decrying the house of wealth that we so quickly can put our hope in. Not even the kings of the day were this well off, all right? There's, there's this contemporary inscription from another king of another realm uh, King Barakov of Samal, and he says this. He says, Fathers, my fathers, the kings of Samal, they had no good house. They had the house of Kilimu, which was their winter house, and also their summer house, which is like my house. We live there both seasons. The people of the Samaria had the kind of wealth that kings envied. But the Lord says, not even your wealth not even in your wealth is there hope. It will all come crashing down. Now, I doubt many of you have winter and summer houses. Um, like I said, I definitely don't fit in that camp, nor am I set on any type of trajectory to get there. 
okay? But just know, I, I'm not saying, and Amos is not saying, that it is wrong to have two houses. You know, if, if God blesses you in such a way, that's wonderful. But the thing is, the thing he wants you to hear, whether you have one home or whether you have two, do you put your trust in your finances? Do you see your possessions as the only thing that can give you fulfillment, make you whole, keep you safe? Do you see profit as your end goal? I just have to make this much and I'll be content. If we can just get this car, then we'll fit in, we'll be accepted. Money isn't evil, but it sure is enticing. It has a way of pulling on our affections, of becoming our master, our Lord, our hope. It's why the ancients always talked about generosity. Generosity, they claimed, is one of the theological values, virtues to use your resources, time, talent, treasure, to care for the poor and the needy, to come alongside the church with your resources in her call to impact your city, the place in which you live, to, in, to impact the marginalized of your community. Friends, generosity keeps us from clinging to the house of wealth. Well, the lion has roared. To what house will we flee? For neither reputation, religious activity, or wealth will stand. The Lord will blow down each of these houses. There's not a lot of call to response in, in Amos 3. And you probably were getting to the end and you're like, all right, where are we going? What do I do? What do I do? Because the main point is understanding. For judgment is certain and nothing can withstand it. But in verse 8, in the middle of this passage, we find what our proper response to God ought to look like. The lion has roared, who will not fear? For the proper response of God's people is fear. It might be pretty easy to, to understand, right? Who wouldn't fear a lion who roars? But Israel didn't. We so often find others that should have known better. We think about that ourselves, do we not? When we make a wrong-headed move, I should have known better. Gosh, and it eats us up inside. Those who put their hope in the houses of reputation, religiosity, wealth, what had they to fear? If only they had known that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The lion has roared. Will we not fear? It's an open question to us all. The Israelites chose not to fear the living God. Will we? Will we look not to our own strength, but to God's, but to our hope and our strength found in Christ and his resurrection? Will we look not on our own way, but to the Lord's way, to his son who came to show us how to live, to how to live justly, equitably, how to love one another? Will we understand the depth of our own sin in the light of God's holiness? Will we cling not to the horns of the altar, but will we cling to the one who can bear our punishment? For we cannot live up to this, to this privilege. We need one to show us how. We need one to empower us how. We need one to, to bring us along with him. We need one to follow. Will we cast off the pride of arrogance? Will we seek the humility of godly fear? Humility 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who took the judgment meant for us, that we might not live for ourselves, but that we may fear God, living a life of humility. The humility to know we can't live up. We can't live up, ever. The humility to know we are much worse than we think. The humility to know that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, Amos's words are hard to hear. They make my insides squirm. But Lord, I am so thankful for your word that never ends, that never grows old. May we as a people grow into it. May it flow out from us. May we be your people, not just in name, but in character. May we live out our call to be your treasured possession, that we may fear you above all else that nothing else would captivate our heart like the glory of your name. Not privilege or money or fame, not safety, security, or comfort. Forgive us, forgive me, the ways I so often fail. Chasing after false hope, looking to my own ends, looking for joy outside of you, disadvantaging, living into the, to a system that at times can marginalize the poor. Lord, help me to see clearly. Help me to see clearly. Lord, renew our jobs that they may seek the good and the flourishing of our neighbor. Lord, renew our families that they may reflect your love and sacrifice. Lord, renew our government and our communities that they may bring harmony and not chaos. Lord, renew our hearts that we may follow the words of the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. <laughs>